Behavior modification is oftentimes what we reduce Christianity to be. If you just change your life in this way, then God will be happy and love you. If you just do the right things, God will be happy and love you. If you do this or check the boxes off of your list, then somehow you will have God's favor. And it's a very sanitized version of Christianity. And I would argue that it's not the real thing. It's actually a counterfeit. And what we see here in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 15 through 28 is an argument for the real thing. An argument for what Christianity is really all about and why it matters. And not just why it matters, but what it costs God so that you can be in His presence. We take for granted coming into this place together to ask God to fill this place with his presence to as we sang the song earlier prepare him room we take for granted what it costs for that to actually happen and there's a lot of talk in the world and in culture and in Christianity even about the love of God and I think that talk is very important the love of God is so necessary for us to understand but, but listen, the book of Hebrews tells us that you can't understand the love of God unless you understand the blood of God. It's so important that we hear this. You can't understand the love of God unless you understand the blood of God. Because there is a cost by which God loves us. And the cost is is the shedding of the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God who became flesh and dwelt among us. So we're going to divide this passage into two sections. I've got two points today. doesn't mean that you're going to get out of here any earlier, but I've got two points today. Number one, we're going to talk about the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant, verses 15 through 22. Uh, Number two, we're going to talk about the authenticity of the covenant, verses 23 through 28. And let me pray for us before we get started. Father, I want to thank you so much that we come here and we come under the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And, And God, I ask that you would help us right now because... God, I just confess that it's so easy to have an aversion towards blood. That blood is messy. That God, my my first reaction to blood is to clean it up. It's messy. Get it out of here. Get it out of the way. I don't want to see it. But but Lord, you've put it so before us right now. That we can't escape it. You want us to see it. You want us to know it. Because God, you want us to know the power that's in it. You want us to know the freedom that awaits us. And that the beauty of Christ's blood is that God, our sins have been paid for. We've been redeemed. So Holy Spirit, would you help us hear this message? Would you help us apply it to our hearts? Lord, that behavior modification would not be the result, but that you would change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 9.15 Therefore, he is the mediator of a new 
covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So, so the book of Hebrews up to this point has explained a whole lot. And if you're just catching us here today, maybe this is your first time here at Crosspoint downtown, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We take the word of God as God gives it to us and we seek to know the full counsel of God. It's incredibly helpful for us to understand the Bible the way it was written. So we're not, we're not just taking a verse here and taking a verse there. We're going through the, we're going through the, the way the author wrote it to the people he wrote it to so that we would know those things to strengthen us. So it's the full counsel of God that we need. And, and we don't avoid certain passages that we tend to want to avoid. Oftentimes a passage like this would be something that we would want to avoid because it's really messy. And it has been really messy. We, we talked about in chapter 9 verses 1 through 14 that this worship that was given to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, was a worship that included a, a temporary place of worship, the tabernacle, according to the divine specifications given by God to Moses and the sacrificial system. Sacrificial system was the slaying of animals for the forgiveness of sins. And the question that we asked last week is, how can an innocent animal pay for the guilty sins of mankind? Can't be done. So therefore, animal sacrifices were a picture to something greater. The greater sacrifice. And the greater sacrifice was, as John the Baptist said, when he saw Jesus Christ, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away all our sins. And that we would behold this Lamb of God and that we would see the greater sacrifice that was made on behalf of mankind. And the blood of animals only cleansed the externals, but the blood of Christ purifies us from the inside out. We'll catch a little bit of that uh, here as we continue. And so that leads us to verse 915. We have a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So I want to talk about covenant for a moment. Uh, Covenant is a unique relationship. So it's a legal term, but it's a legal term for a unique relationship. Contract is a, uh, is a relationship, but it's not really a unique relationship. It's not really a loving relationship. It's one that you're obligated to commit to for the good of the other party, for the other party's good of you. In fact, if someone breaches the contract, you can just say, no, we don't have relationship anymore. The contract is broken. That's why marriage, when the Bible talks about marriage, it's not a contract, but it's a covenant. And it's a covenant of love where there is a necessity that the two people involved in the covenant look not towards their own interests, but the interests of the other. And so God uses this language covenant in the Bible oftentimes, and and he actually uses it four times In the Old Testament, he made a covenant with Noah in the time of the flood that he would never again flood the universe. He made a covenant with Abraham that God would multiply 
His people, the people of Israel, to many, many in number, that they would outnumber the stars in the sky. And He gave that promise to Abraham. He made it again with Moses on behalf of the people Israel. If you obey my commandments, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then again to King David. And as he gave this covenant to his people, the problem wasn't that God didn't keep his end of the bargain. (laughs) The problem was that people people whom he made for himself could not keep their end of the bargain. So there is a need for a new covenant. There's a need for a, a, a new covenant and, and not a new covenant that put the emphasis upon the people to keep their end of the bargain because we've proven that we can. That's why the Bible says in Romans, no one is righteous, no, not one. But God this time would create a new covenant that was completely dependent upon himself where he would love us because he loves us not because we're innately lovable because of something in and of ourselves and so marriage the marriage covenant shows that unique relationship this is why when the marriage covenant is broken it causes great harm this is why when We, as God's people, sin against him. It causes great harm. But the great harm that it has caused, God has chosen to, before the foundations of the world, to do something about that. So that this covenant would always be intact. That there would be nothing that could break this covenant. Let me put it to you in layman's terms. So that there would be nothing that could separate you from the love of Of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, not even death, could separate you from the love of God. And how does God do that? We often can answer the question, we know what God has done for us. But how did he do it? How did he accomplish for us forgiveness? And this passage explains not just the what God has done, but the how God did it, and he did it by becoming a better mediator. So when we think about mediator, we often think about it in terms of our normal legal positions, meaning that we think about someone who sits between two parties to make an agreeable solution to a problem. That's a mediator, right? Well, there's a different mediator that's necessary here. Uh, commentator Al Mohler says this, Mediator is a dangerous word for many of us because we think we know what it means. We assume that a mediator is someone who gets two opposing sides together and tries to effect a compromise or agreement between them. Christ, as mediator, doesn't find a compromise between the two because God's holiness cannot be compromised. In other words, God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. That's part of God's being just and righteous. If God was not just or righteous, then He wouldn't be God. So God's holiness cannot be compromised. Continuing on, he says, Far from suggesting a compromise between the two opposing positions, Christ agrees with the Father 
that we deserve the infinite outpouring of his wrath. He agrees with the Father of the ugliness of sin. He agrees with the Father of the necessity of sacrifice. And as our mediator, he agrees to be that sacrifice, even as the Father sends him for the task. So Christ's job as the mediator is to actually pay the penalty that the opposing side of, of the argument or party cannot pay in order to have an agreeable resolution, meaning that his blood is shed instead of ours. The, the, the word blood in the Bible is one that we should become comfortable with. It's hard to become comfortable with, but it's used so much in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you see it very often because where sin has been committed, a sacrifice is necessary. And in that sacrifice represented the shedding of blood. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, the word blood is mentioned 12 times. In Hebrews alone, the word blood is mentioned 25 times. The only other book in the New Testament where it's mentioned around that many times is the book of Revelation. And so there's something that the author is trying to tell us here as it relates to that blood. And the first is, if we are going to inherit this eternal life, this promise that God has given us, if we are going to inherit this, death has to occur. It's payable on death. We, we, we all know kind of the, the way, the, 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 the legal way wills in uh, testaments work. If you're alive and you have a will, that will is not enacted until you die, right? It's true in our society. It's the same is true in the economy of God. That where there is a will, in order for that will to be enacted, a death must occur. And so in the life of Christ, he gave lots of promises. And you could count his promises as if they're his will being written. And in his will, he wrote these promises that I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And he wrote a promise that says, I am the bread of life. And if you eat of the bread that I offer, you'll never go hungry again. And if you drink of the living water that I have to offer, you will never thirst Again, And so you have these promises that Christ wrote. Many of them he wrote upon his will with his words. And in order for that will to be enacted, a death must occur. And the other legality of a will is that you also need beneficiaries. Who is it that are going to receive the, 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 the benefits of this will? Well, oftentimes it's those who are closest to the one who dies. And here God has laid out for uh, us who will receive the benefits of his will, and that's God's children. And you also need an executor, don't you? You need someone who can execute the, 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 the 
requirements of the one who wrote them. And that person's really important because that person you must trust. That person must also act in such a way that they're not trying to benefit for themselves or steal from the person who died, who just entrusted them with the things that they hold most dear. And, and so when Christ died, listen, this is so powerful. When Christ died, his will was enacted. And when he rose again, he became the executor. He became the mediator. He's the only person in history that both enacted his will by his death and therefore gets to see his will carried out in accordance with the way he said it because he is the one who is distributing those gifts to the people he holds most dear. Because Jesus Christ went down into the grave and robbed it, he has given us life and life to its fullest. And so for a will to be enacted, a death must take place. And in Christ's death, we received the riches of his inheritance. Hebrews uses this language of heir and inheritance in order to show us the wealth that we have in Christ. Not only that Christ is wealthy, but that Christ's wealth belongs to you and me. Those of us who love God and worship God and are called his children. We are his sons and daughters. That was the benefit that Christ has given us. And we get to see that the legal demands of the law have been paid in full through Christ's death. And he's also the one that's in control of all things. Because he's the executor of the will according to To what he wants to see happen. How how does that apply to my life? How how does that apply to my life? Anybody control freaks in the room? Anybody? Got a few of you. Yes, yes. And the others that didn't raise your hand, come on, you can put them up. There we go. We got somebody raising another person's hand. There we go. Good. Um, The older I get, the more responsibility I have, the more I find myself holding tightly to control. Because I want things to go my way all the time. Josiah, did you just say yes, amen? Anyway, um, the, the older I get, the more I want to hold on tightly to those things. Because I, I want for life to, to go according to my plans. Because I, I have the best plans, by the way. It, it, it's, it, there's, there's no arguing those things. But, but listen, if Christ is the one who's in control, then shouldn't I be subservient to him? Shouldn't I be a servant? We should all be a servant to Christ. If, if God is in control and all things are happening in accordance with his will and he is enacting his promises as we live and breathe and move, shouldn't we live and breathe and move for him and not ourselves? When we try to control things, it's saying that God is not God and I am. It's saying that I trust someone or something other than God. A woman by the name of Rebecca Pippert says it so well when she says, Christ died so that we could be forgiven for managing our own lives. It would be impossible to thank Christ for dying and yet to continue running our own lives. But isn't that what we do? 
We say these words like, thank you for the cross, and then we leave here and then we go and run our own lives. That's, listen, we, we, we must be convicted of that. When we leave, we, we come, we leave as servants of the Most High God, and here we, we're reading about the will of God, and we say, this is what God has for me. This is what God wants for me. And, and this is what I cherish. This is what is most valuable. Because his precious blood was spilt for it. Hebrews 9.18 Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant God commanded for you. A quote from the Old Testament. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I'm going to say it again. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. When the priest went into the most holy place, he went in there with blood. The, we read it in, in, in the beginning of chapter 9. That priest would dare not go into that most holy place without taking blood. Because if he did, it would require his own. But the problem with his own blood is his own blood wasn't good enough. So without the shedding of blood... There's no forgiveness of sins. And, and, and here's why that, that little movie was so funny, but also so convicting at the same time, is because sin runs deeper than our actions. We, we, we all think somehow intuitively that God graves on a curve. Somehow, and somehow we're at the top of the curve, so we don't need to be, we don't need to be afraid. Well, let me tell you who's at the top of the curve. Jesus, God's perfect son who sets the standard. And I I tell you, friends, we are far, far from that. And if we are not that, the Bible says, then we're evil. Now, now that can be a shocking word right there. Hold on, hold on. Evil? Actually, it says in Colossians that, that we were hostile in mind. That we were enemies of God according to our evil deeds. Jesus says that from the outflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. So everything that we do doesn't just come through what we do, but everything that we do comes through the heart. That's why we needed an internal cleansing from the inside out. So let me give you an example of this. You've all been sinned against. Everybody in this room has been sinned against. And if you struggle with unforgiveness, I understand why you do. If you struggle with unforgiveness, it's a struggle that we all can face. I myself struggle with unforgiveness. And here's why. Because there's more to the sin than just the sin. Let's say you have a close friend who lies to you. You can make a choice to forgive them. But you don't just forgive that single solitary lie. When they knowingly lied to you. When they know, knowingly committed a, an offense against you, you, you it, it impugns their character, doesn't it? Can I trust this person? Could I trust this person when I trusted them last month or last year or for the last 10 years? I mean, is anything real about this person? 
And that, that sin runs deep. It runs deep in our emotions. And that, that single solitary lie may have had a huge ramification on your life. It may have had, had roots that ran deep into other areas that caused hurt and wounds. And so forgiving that person isn't just forgiving the single solitary lie. It's forgiving the person, not just the action. It's forgiving the person entirely. And it's saying to that person, I can look at you with credibility because I forgive you. I can look at you in the realization that you are not that person and that you're going to be something different. Even if someone walks in unrepentance, they still deserve They don't deserve your forgiveness, but they should be given your forgiveness. Doesn't mean that the relationship moves forward entirely the way it was, but it means that God changed that person so that I could trust them again. Change that person so that this doesn't happen again. That's oftentimes what forgiveness produces. So when you think about everything having to be purified with blood, think about the the veins that run deep into the roots in life, it goes so far deeper. It, 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 it's, it's corruption in so many ways. So when, when the priest went in the most holy place, he, the, the animal was slaughtered on the altar before him and the blood ran from the veins of the neck of that animal down. But he also took a hyssop branch and he dipped it in the blood and he took that hyssop branch and he sprinkled it all over the tent And he sprinkled that blood all over the tent representing the effects of sin even in the most pure areas of life and how Jesus' blood purifies those areas. It purifies not only the actions but everything that sin does when it corrupts society, our lives, our hearts, those whom we most love. It's so difficult to forgive sin. In fact, it's impossible Unless, unless someone perfect can forgive sin, not just in actions, but deep into the heart. And one of the results of Christ's forgiveness is this application for our lives, is that you forgive sinners. You forgive others. One of the most repeated commands in the New Testament is forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Listen, when when we we talk about the benefits of Christ's blood that we've received, it also means that we're free to forgive. We're free to not hold grudges because God doesn't hold a grudge. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19 says, You are ransomed. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God didn't come with a bag full of money to ransom you. God came with blood to ransom you. And God spilt his own blood It wasn't like dragging a bull to the altar and then slaughtering it. No, no. Jesus walked into that most holy place voluntarily. And he said, take my blood. Take my blood. That's the promise of the new covenant. Is that through Christ's blood, the 
Remission of sins would be given. God's wrath would be satisfied. This is what it means for substitutionary atonement, is that you weren't good enough to pay for your sins. So therefore, there had to be a substitute in your place. Second point, the authenticity of the covenant. There's a difference between a replica and a counterfeit and the real thing, right? So uh, when I was a kid, my uncle collected these die-cast NASCAR things. And we, he got us into this. He bought us these NASCARs, and, and uh, all of them said authentic replica. Well, of course, they're this miniaturized version of the real thing. They weren't the real thing. They were an authentic replica. When we talk about the Old Testament tabernacle that God gave Moses to build according to the specifications and what he saw, it was a replica. It wasn't the real thing. It wasn't a counterfeit. It wasn't fake. The replica, the tabernacle, had a a purpose And the purpose of the tabernacle was to actually show us the real thing. And so in the replica, the Old Testament tent of meeting, we had a picture of what heaven was like. It's that God is holy and unapproachable. And that man is sinful and in need of forgiveness. And that God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, the, the, the way would be provided so that man could be in the presence of God. Remember last week we talked about how the, the, everything about the tabernacle said, keep out, keep out. But what we see in the New Testament through the blood of Christ, the message is draw near, draw near. Because that veil is torn. The way into the most holy place has been made accessible to all by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that is in itself a picture of something far greater. That we actually have the tabernacle in Christ before us. We are in the presence of God, friends, even right now. And we will be in the presence of God forever because of His blood. It's not just an annual thing. We don't just go into that most holy place once a year or rely upon a priest to do so. No, we can go ourselves because of his finished and accomplished work. Thus it was necessary, says Hebrews 9.23, for the copies of these heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is entered not into the holy places made with hands, which is what the tabernacle was, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So so we don't have Christ offering himself up annually as a reminder that sin is still needing redemption. We have Christ who appeared one time to pay for sin. So when Jesus Christ comes back, which he will, it will not be to pay for sin because that debt has already been paid. But when Jesus Christ comes back, it's going to be to take us home. It's to be to rescue us, 
to set us free from the plight of this world. You all know this world can be filled with euphoric joy or absolute depression. All you have to do is read the daily news and to see that there's incredible things that await us, but also incredible things that can harm us. Jesus, the promise of the inheritance is that he would deliver us from that and he would bring us into the place of euphoric joy all the time in his presence. Micah and I met this week and and he was telling me about a family member who who bought a piece of land. We were talking about the whole idea of the replica and and, and the real thing. And, And when they bought this piece of land... They uh, wanted to build their dream home. And before they could build their dream home, though, they needed a place to live. So they had a trailer brought on this piece of land where they would live while they would build the dream home. And when the dream home was built, they moved out of the trailer and moved into the real thing. And the trailer was taken away. But, But could you imagine having this piece of land and then you work hard to build this dream home... But you decide after the dream home's built, no, I'm pretty comfortable in the trailer. I'm just going to stay here. Uh, the replica's fine for me. I'm, I'm okay with this. I, I really don't need everything that I worked really hard for and that I prayed for and that I sought after in the home. But oftentimes, friends, this is what we do. The Israelites that Jesus Christ had shown himself to were given this very same predicament. Are you going to continue to think that the tabernacle is the real place of worship and these sacrifices are the real thing? Or are you going to move away from that to the authentic work of Christ as the presence of God and the sacrifice of God? That was the temptation that the Jews faced after Christ came. Would you trade the eternal blood of Christ for the temporal blood of a bull or goat or calf? And it's the same thing we face today. Would we trade the eternal blood of the covenant, the real thing, the authenticity of the covenant, for this temporary place that we live in called earth and all of its benefits? Would we live our lives for the here and now and think this is all God has, so I'm going to soak it up right now? Or would we, would we enter in to the reality that God has something far greater for us. Because listen, this changes the way you live. If you think that everything that matters is right here, right now, then you're going to live for the right here, right now. But if you think, if you believe that Christ has promised you something greater, then your lives will be surrendered to Him, like Rebecca Pippert says. Your life will be surrendered to the authentic work of Christ that is purchased for you. Not annual redemption, but eternal redemption. See, Jesus gave us an example of how to live. That's why he only lived to 33. Because in the way Jesus lived, he said that this life is only worth what God has given me. And God has given me a greater Life far beyond this earth. And this is why we can live as missionaries and as people that are not obsessed by our possessions because there's a greater possession in eternity that awaits us. 
This week, my, my family, we had an Advent devotional. And uh, uh, parents, if you have kids, you know how this goes. You, you dream of these times where you can have a devotional and that it would go well. In fact, you make these plans and, and, and you're envisioning these times in your mind and they're so warm and cozy and the kids are just obedient and are listening to you and they're answering the questions and they're doing so without mocking one another or fighting or bickering, right? I mean, that, that, that's what we envision, isn't it? And, and, and 90% of the time, 95% of the time, that isn't what happens. <laughs> but... But we had a really sweet time. This was an exception to that. We keep going, by the way. Don't, don't let those things scare you. Keep going. Repetition builds formation. That's why the author of Hebrews is very redundant. Anyway, side note. So we had this really refreshing time. And I read this story. And the story was the story of the Tower of Babel. If I could find it here. I didn't bookmark it. So give me a moment. You can maybe even talk amongst yourself. Sorry. I was not prepared for this. We're going to find it. It's called The Giant Staircase to Heaven. My favorite, one of my favorite authors, Sally Lloyd-Jones. I've given this book away to adults, by the way. This is not just for kids, and you need a copy in your home. And you need to be reading it. Okay. You'll be glad to after I'm done with this story. No one in his family lived in the land, and his children had children, and those children had more children, and then those children had even more. Well, you get the picture. Until there were lots of people on earth once more. Now, back then, everyone spoke exactly the same language, so you didn't need to learn Swahili or Japanese or anything, because you could say hello to anyone, and they knew what you meant. One day, everyone was talking, and they came up with an idea. Let's build ourselves a beautiful city to live in. It can be our home, and we'll be safe forever and ever. Then they had another idea. And let's build a really tall tower to reach up to heaven. Yes, they said. We'll say, look at us up here, and everyone will look up at us. And we'll look down on them. And then we'll know that we're something. We'll be like God. We'll be famous and safe and happy. And everything will be all right. So they got to work brick by brick. The tower grew higher and higher until it soared above the city, touching the sky. They built stairs in the tower to climb to the top. It was like a giant staircase to heaven. Look, they cheered. We're the ones. See what we can do with our very own hands? They were quite pleased with themselves, but God wasn't pleased with them. God could see what they were doing. They were trying to live without him. But God knew that wouldn't make them happy or safe or anything. If they kept on like this, they would only destroy themselves. And God loved them too much to let that happen. So he stopped their plans. One morning, they went to work as usual, but everything was different. Their words were all new and funny, you see. God had given each person completely a different language. Suddenly, no one understood what anyone else was saying. Someone would say, how do you do? And the other person thought they said, how ugly are you? It wasn't funny. You could see, you you could be saying 
something nice like such a lovely morning and get a punch in the nose because they thought you said, hush up, you're boring. You couldn't even say pardon to check if you've heard right because no one understood that word either. It wasn't easy to work together after that, as you can only imagine. People were always quarreling and fighting and getting in a dreadful muddle, all becoming grumpier and grumpier, until at last they were all too cross to keep on building and just had to stop. After that, people scattered all over the world, which is how we ended up with so many different languages to this day. You see, God knew, however, how high they reached However, how hard they tried, people can never get back to heaven by themselves. People didn't need a staircase, they needed a rescuer. Because the way back to heaven wasn't a staircase, it was a person. People could never reach up to heaven, so heaven would have to come down. Down to them. And one day, it would. So we read this story. I looked at my daughter, Adeline, and she started crying. I said, why are you crying, Adeline? And Adeline said, Daddy, I want to be with you forever. And I started talking to her about the plan of rescue that God has provided through his son, Jesus Christ. And I said, well, Adeline, here's the deal. Where he is, I will always be. Because he died and he lives. Because he gave me that promise. And he is enacting that promises right now. As the one who's complete control. And so Adam. If we all trust in him. To be our rescuer. We will all be together. Forever. Isn't that what Advent's all about? It's not about celebrating what we have here and now. It's about celebrating that God came down to pay for sin and that he's going to come back and take us home. He's going to come back and take us home. In fact, one of the promises that Jesus wrote in his will was where I will be, you shall be with me also. And he's going to take us to that most holy place where we will always be in the safe and loving arms of God. And by the grace of God, I'm going to preach the gospel until the day I die so that all of you and everyone in this city can be with me. Where he is, I will be. Can we let Jesus be in control? Can we let the one who died and also lived be the one that we surrender to and we say, I'm not going to do it on my own strength, but I trust God that you have done it. It is final and it's finished. Let's pray. Father, we need this. We need this far beyond anything else. We need this. We need to come to a place of surrender today. Would you cause, Lord, those who have struggled to believe this reality as they came into the door today to to believe, God, that you've shed your blood, to believe, God, that their sins can be forgiven, to believe, God, that they can forgive the sins of others, to believe, God, that we don't have to control all things. Can, can you cause us to believe in the real thing that heaven awaits? And it's your grace that gets us there. And the real gift in heaven, Jesus, is you. It's you. We worship you. 
In Jesus' name, the church says, amen. Would you stand? We're going to worship. We're going to ask God's grace to fall afresh on us. That we would marvel at his beauty and splendor. And after we sing, we'll take communion and remember that finished work.